You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, this is Megan Daum, or Megan Dom, as I'm sometimes known, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Megan Dom. She's the author of The Problem with Everything, The Unspeakable and Other Discussions, and she hosts the podcast, Unspeakable. Megan, how are you? I'm well, Tony. Nice to did be you, here. Did, did you like I went into my NPR voice for a second? It felt I didn't mean to do it. Do you mean NPR of your classic NPR or current contemporary NPR, which where everybody talks like this now? <laughs> the younger, the younger, there's a generational divide in NPR. I really, yeah, I can't listen to NPR anymore. I used to listen religiously, no. and then now I'm like, I'm like, no, can't do it. Well, now it is a religion. It actually is a religion. So yeah. if you don't want to be part of that religion, you can't listen to it. I, I can't listen to it anymore either. But what, yeah. So how how would you describe the religion of NPR? Oh, it's, it's um, I mean, there are exceptions and they still do some really good reporting, but oh, it's just very much the kind of identitarian, identitarian. I try not to say woke and I try not to, I try not to use these overused terms. So I'm trying to say instead of identity politics, I'm trying to say, or instead of saying like social justice warrior, I never use that term because I think it's derogatory, but I, I yeah. tried to say identitarian and identitarian and they, their religion would be identitarianism. No, every single thing is about, you know, some identity category, race or gender or something else. And yeah, it's like, it's like being in a, in a freshman uh, sociology class. Somebody just got mad at me recently because she thought I, I, dist sociologists all the time. And really what it is, is I'm just, I use sociology department as like a euphemism for some larger phenomenon. It has nothing to do with how I actually feel about sociologists. So I feel like NPR occupies that, that territory. It's just, it's, it's it feels very prescribed. It, it, yeah. And it was hard. I just, you know, pre um, like right, right around the, right around when Trump got elected. Well, when Trump got elected, I just stopped listening because they were, all I heard was Trump, 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 Trump. I'm yeah, like, was, I don't want, I don't want him. I, resistance. I don't want, yeah, I don't want to listen. I don't want to care about this reality star that became a president. Why? <laughs> I have other things on my mind. Yeah, no, they were they were part of the resistance movement. That's happened to a lot of media, but NPR is that's very much the case. But I think that's true. With a lot of these organizations, there are there are generational. There's a generational divide within the organization, and you really it's it's very um, you can hear it. You know, it's, it comes through. So yeah, but especially in their voices. If you just want to talk about actual voice texture and tone. I find that stuff fascinating. Nobody talks like Susan Stamberg anymore. You know, that's that's gone. The old days of NPR. It's almost like everyone talks like they were they played on the monkey bars at school and there was no asphalt. There was very soft ground to fall on and everything's okay. There was a lot of safe mm. rooms. Or yeah, or they talk like college radio people used to talk like that oh, kind yeah. of um and I, I, I think you you know they yeah, they said they're very I no no no, I know, but there's like very indie and I actually blame This American Life for that, the change. That was a dramatic, um, a huge aesthetic influence in terms of vocal intonation was the way Ira Glass spoke and the way that show went. And that was a brilliant show, um, but it was, it really, um, it marked a, a sort of real, real kind of inflection point, inflection point with people's literal inflections. So there you go. It's, I, you know, yeah, I think of This American Life and, that, and I remember loving it. But then when everyone is this American life, then I don't exactly. care. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. All right. Well, it's great talking to you. Okay. Thanks for having no me. <laughs> I'm going to go listen to NPR now. <laughs> Do you listen to NPR like as a masochistic thing? You're like, I hate myself today. I'm turning it to. <laughs> I know. I don't listen to it anymore. I like some of the local shows are good. I mean, I love Larry Mantle in LA on KPCC. And then here we have Brian Lehrer, who is like the Larry Mantle of, of New York. Those shows have remained excellent. Yeah. Um, some of the local shows, but no, I can't, I can't listen to like <clears throat> all things considered anymore. It's, and this, I, this kind of segues really well into what you've done as a podcast unspeakable or does it segue really well? I don't know. You're, you're looking at me like, that's not a good Every, segue. Everything's, everything segues perfectly into everything. 
yeah, the un- the unspeakable. What have I done? I don't. Yeah, I try to be. I do find myself when I introduce a guest, like almost channeling Terry Gross, and it's a, a bad it's a bad habit, and I'm trying to stop doing it. That's what I was doing at the beginning. I was trying to be like, yeah. I, I can't, I can't not do it. And I used to do college radio, and I think that's why I can't yeah. not do it because. But that was like 20 years ago. I should have some decades out of it, right? Or no, oh my but God, I think she's just, she's just, but I mean, she's so influential as an interviewer. Yeah. She's, yeah. we just, that, that sort of the rhythm of that introduction is just in our ear, I think, if yeah. we grew up at a certain time. So yeah, I really introduced my guests, like, it, you know, you know, he does this and this, and then there's like three things, ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. And we talked about this, like, you know, I'm like, you, know, you don't have to do it that way every time. <laughs> so, no. so um, Drinks with Tony started in 2002, the, and I was doing it as a radio show. I, this is a, I, the, you'll know why I said this in a minute, because on my, I used to put flyers together for the show and distribute them around San Francisco. And my yes. bio was, Tony is the bastard child of Charlie Rose and Terry Gross. <laughs> so did you stammer a lot or did you or no it was like the dropping names the charlie rose you would have had to like every every other name somebody said like oh yeah i was just at a dinner party with that person oh that my god that's right constantly. yeah so bougie right. but terry gross never went to dinner parties ever because she was too busy preparing for the show so that's was the feeling i got I, yeah well know, that's a good that's a good set of parents yeah, I mean, that's when I was like 30 and, you know, drinks with Tony was eight Jameson's at the time. Now it's a cup. Now, now it's a <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> it's like, you know, you know, when you name something and you mature and you go, oh, crap. <laughs> so. Yeah, my misspent youth. Well, I, I will forever be associated with that title. So. Yeah. And that was that was that was one of your first books, right? It was my first book. Yeah. 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 Great. I mean, and, okay. And wait, I, but and like, I, yeah, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 you were going to say the, I, You know, I, I'm interrupting you. Uh, you're the interviewer. No, but I interrupted you. I think it's my fault. <laughs> I'm just going to say my misspent youth that uh, I, I didn't give it the that wasn't my title originally. And I didn't want to use it because my parents were like such uh, not to not to speak ill of the dead. They were many. There were many wonderful things, but I can't say they weren't narcissists. And I knew that if uh, I, if the book was called My Misspent Youth, they would see it as a reflection on them. And in fact, they did because they I was they saw everything as an, as an extension of themselves and, you know, their children. So uh, so it was it was hard. I had a to- totally different name for that book. But the 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 piece, the the essay that is the title piece of that book was called My Misspent Youth. And it had been in The New Yorker and they had given it that title. So we just kind of kept it. But um, I wow. did not have a misspent youth at all. Like I was such a good a good girl for really like oh as a teenager yeah I, but i misspent refers to i got in a lot of debt in my 20s so that's what that piece is it's about. literal it's financial it's literal it's literal yeah oh that's so cool now yeah. wait a second you got in the new yorker before you had a book out yeah i was i was precocious how do you, how do, you do that yeah that's big time i was well i really i know I, a lot I, of writers who have like eight books out and the bestsellers and can't get in the new yorker <laughs> Yeah, well, getting in the New Yorker doesn't mean you're gonna have a bestseller. Uh, I was, I was really um, determined to be like an essayist. I just, I was writing pieces in my twenties. Uh, you know, I, I had graduated from college. I had an editorial assistant job at Condé Nast. That was my first job out of out of college, and you know, it was like Devil Wears Prada kind of things. Uh huh getting coffee and being abused by oh really so it was emaciated you know starving yeah. emaciated lunatic uh, very fashionable women but um uh <laughs> i really wanted to be like joan didion or something so mm-hmm. i would i started writing essays and um just sort of about things going on in the culture but then i would you know th- through my own lens and then i became the kind of like gen x sort of spokesperson you know kind of just unofficial so yeah I had um I had my first piece in the New Yorker in 1997 I think so wow. I, was 20, I was 27 yeah it was exciting um it wasn't like I was in there all the time or anything but I, I had a, a handful of pieces and uh yeah and then I ended up collecting the essays and, and having them be a be a book but my agent at the time said that was a terrible idea nobody wants to read a book of essays you need to come up with a big high concept um idea and i wrote countless proposals 
with high concept ideas and my agent always hated them. So finally I was like, let's just, let's just take these essays and make them into a book. And I just went with a small publisher who were some friends of mine. Very, this is very nineties, but like they were what, like, what they publisher had a, was it? Well, Open City Books, uh-huh. Open City Magazine was a, was a literary magazine at that time started by um, Tom Beller and Rob Bingham and Daniel Pinchbeck. And it was like very cool New York kind of scene. And uh, they started publishing books and like it's in the late nineties. And um, so, so we did a little book together and it, it would be it was sort of like this cult. It kind of became this like cult. I don't want to say classic, but it's, it had a, a cult following. Let's just put it that way. So, I, 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 for me, I say cult following because my book didn't sell well. <laughs> that, like, that applies I, too. <laughs> well, you know, I would say like, if your advance is $3,000, you can, you can earn that out pretty quickly. I could say it, it sold well, considering how little I was paid. So there yeah, you go. Yeah. Try to look at that that way. Yeah, exactly. Wait, um, Oh, but the, so what, when did you decide, oh, so you wrote the book unspeakable and then you said, wait a second, I also have a podcast here. Okay. So yeah, the, um, the unspeakable as a title just kind of became this little mini franchise. So that book, the unspeakable and other subjects of discussion uh, is, is a collection of original essays that was published in 2014. And that was my uh, fourth book, I guess. And yeah, there again, that was a case where I'd had, like I had a novel and I had a memoir and I just said, you know, I really, I love essays. I love that form. I just want to do another book of essays, but I want them to be essays that were specifically written to be in the company of one another in a book. I didn't want pieces that had been published elsewhere because a lot of essay collections are like that, right? They're, they're right. pieces that have appeared but, in various magazines and sometimes they were commissioned by editors. And No, like, like reading yeah. a David Sedaris book. You're like, oh wait, all these were in the New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but you know, at least those are like tonally consistent because they're yeah. all in the New Yorker. I mean, sometimes you get these books and they're like, oh, this one was in Salon. This one was in Vogue. And this one was in, you know, like Cat Fancy or something. I don't know. It's just, just they're, they're really like kind of um, not, uh, not, co- not cohesive as, as they would say on the, what was that fashion show? The uh, project show? runway they play, it's, oh, not, it's very okay. it's very cohesive it's very cohesive the the line that was a buzzword the, the fashion line yeah they would say that um so i do think essay books need to be cohesive so uh yeah i just decided that i was going to do um i was going to write a bunch of essays specifically for the book and um there was a kind of theme emerged that um, they really had to do with topics that that were unspeakable or just didn't it, you know ideas and narratives that didn't sort of um align with uh, what you might perceive as the right kind of narrative. Like, why does everybody have to go through a change or learn a lesson when they've gone through a hard time? Like, why do we always have to say, you know, I, be- I this, this tragedy happened or this crisis, I weathered this crisis and I became a better person. Well, what if you don't become a better person? What if you become, stay the same person? Like, isn't that- become worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So people become worse. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, so to answer your question, The Unspeakable was an essay collection that came out uh, several years ago now. And, um, I've had a couple of books since then, but then when I went to start the podcast last summer, I was trying to think of a name for it. And that just seemed like a good name. So I called the podcast, the unspeakable, but the podcast does not have anything directly to do with that book. Yeah. The pod, well, from what I understand, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, because you know, it's like me describing something that's your baby that you work on every week. And I just, pass by as an audience no, member, no, right? Not at all. But but it's but it, it's about opening up the conversation to uh, to things that people don't want to talk about essentially. It's- yeah, it's it's an interview show and um it's 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 pretty pretty straightforward. I mean I just have conversations with people, nuanced conversations about the kinds of topics that have been rendered taboo, but I, I think they've been rendered taboo because they, they don't get talked about in the right way with enough precision or enough nuance. I mean, nuance is the word that always, um, you know, that that's, that's the, that's sort of the operative word of the, of the show. I, and I try not to actually use it that often, but, um, yeah. So I've had people on to talk about things like, um, the, the sex offender registry and whether we should get rid of it. We talked about the lab leak theory kind of before 
people were starting to talk about I know, it. Oh, right. Isn't that yeah. it? Isn't that it? And I love how everyone's just kind of like now it's like, oh, okay, it was a lab accepting. It's like, you idiots, it's been a lab well, the whole time. Well, so, duh. I mean, it's like it's yeah. it, it, like it's really like the simplest explanation, right? The, the, yeah. the lab was doing gain of function research. Yeah. And all of a sudden the virus is on its front door. I mean, obviously we don't know, but the idea that you can't talk about this just because Trump was talking about it, that's the kind of thing, you know, it's just, it's so maddening. Um, yeah, it's as, terrible. As, yeah, I yeah. Mean, it, I mean, as- Go ahead. No, I mean, it's sort of like as uh, Katie Herzog, she's been on my show twice, actually. She's got a very popular podcast called Blocked and Reported. I think she said, you know, just because uh, Trump says the sky is blue doesn't mean it's red. And people right. just can't accept that. They can't get their minds around it. So, so yeah, a lot of, so we, yeah, we talk about um, all sorts of things. I have, I have authors, I have you know, scientists, journalists, um, comedians, yeah. dating coaches sometimes, you, know, you name it. Oh yeah. I should, I should start getting relationship coaches on my show so I can do better at my relationship. Oh, I thought you were going to say, so you can get more listeners. Is that what people like? I feel like I get a lot of requests for, like relationship and I hate and get, I don't want to talk about that stuff you get requests <laughs> no I mean I get like you're, you're like oh, why don't you have on yeah I know why don't you have on somebody to talk about yeah I get like a lot of people were asking about they want to talk about dating or something I'm like uh, I am not I'm not talking about that yeah I'm not I mean not on a personal level like that's well, it's, not, I, not anybody's business well we can clear all that all up right now you know how to be a good dater you have communication you enjoy each other you go do laundry together and you go out at night well that is very old-fashioned you it? do laundry together like on a first date actually that's not a bad idea like no. let's meet at the laundromat yeah no they, what's beautiful is the boring mundane things of life are kind of celebrated if you're with the right person yeah yeah. Well, you're looking at me like I'm out of my mind. Maybe. No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. But uh, yeah. I just think I think that's probably uh, that's a very old school. Is approach. it? What, what's yeah. new? What's new? I don't school know. Approach? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I, it's all the apps. It's just the apps. <laughs> and uh, you get on Grinder, <laughs> and then you realize, oh, wait, I'm not gay. And this is only gay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I would, like run into very young people in their 20s and they would describe having like three dates in one day. Like they would just be running around like, oh, I've got a coffee date and then I have a walk date and then I have a drinks date, like a oh, walk date. Oh, with three like different people? Gonna, three, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like oh, that, that's, that's exhausting. That's just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. That that's, you know, and I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, is it, I think it's called polyamory and a lot of people like, you know, that's a religion too. And I'm just like, I can barely deal with myself. And then I got to open up to another person. How yeah. do you add even more to that? Well, also, I think people use the word polyamory when they really just mean, you know, non-monogamous, they just mean cheating. I mean, yeah. that's not really what that, I know that I know the polyamory and that's not really cheating. Obviously it's the opposite of cheating. It's ethical non-monogamy, but again, ethical like, non-monogamy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a term. I didn't make that up, but yeah, it's just like exactly who has time. Why, it's hard uh, enough with one person. So at the same time, that makes it sound like it's like, he's a, he's a Bishop Deacon in our church. He's ethically non-monogamous. Why do we have these terms that prop up virtue when it's just like oh you're just deciding to do that you're not going out and saving the world you're you're not going out and saving hunger you're ethically non-monogamous it just sounds like i'm at a church well it's weird we kind of are at a church i mean this is a comparison that i'm certainly not the first to make and i think it gets tossed around a lot but all these new this these culture war issues that are arising and you know the kind of the social justice movements you know, especially as they are enforced ideologically online a lot of the times. I mean, that does have a church-like yeah. flavor. And so it may be, I kind of, I, I asked a few people like if they thought that the the lack of organized religion or just the fact that fewer people go to church now makes people more susceptible to these kinds of ideological, uh, I don't want to say cults, but sometimes it feels that way a little bit. Um, so, so yeah, it does, but, but yeah, so I think to your point, people like to have an identity category about something that used to just be a personality trait, you know, yeah. like if there's just something about you, like, have you heard of this, um, this term demisexual? Yes. And I don't know what it means. What it, I, it, it sounds demisexual sounds like a super villain God from 
alien times. I, but what does it mean? Okay, that's <laughs> not what it means. I thought it meant you were attracted to Demi Moore only. <laughs> But that's not it either. It means Ashton, that Kutcher, Ashton Kutcher is demisexual. Or he was, I guess. Are they right, still together? Right. I have no idea. I don't know. Um, so, right. So demisexual means that you only are attracted to somebody after you've established an emotional connection to them. And isn't this that, is a marginalized group. What? <laughs> well, if you're if you're mentally healthy. Right. So oh. it's like they have all these things like sapiosexual means that you're attracted to people who are intelligent. Um, oh, I, I, I want I so essentially I, you know, I want someone with an emotional connection and who's intelligent. So I have labels now. Yeah, so you I could be like I could be a part of a few demi, things. You're a demi sapio something you know they always have like a pan poly aromantic you know etc cetera, etc cetera. why no, congratulate they're congratulating themselves right. over idiocy uh, just just I, being... I just i wonder why it is though like it's like it you can look at i mean it's hilarious and it's such low-hanging fruit but i mean to to laugh at it but I, I keep wondering like what they're getting out of it like there must be this must be filling some kind of need or void that we didn't have for whatever reason it i think it brings generation. us it brings us back to the religion aspect because I think everyone craves religion and they don't realize it and they crave leaders and they crave, you know, I want to know right from wrong. And I want to be, you know, I want to be in, I want to be in the church choir, but instead of being in the church choir, they are sociosexual and they are whatever it is. <laughs> they're insatiosexual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. In, in, yeah. That's, that just means you're a sex addict. <laughs> insatio sexo insatio is that really a word yes no i just you just made it up you just coined it oh right now. cool all right so but we now got... it's going to be a marginalized class now <laughs> you just created your own identity category it's, it's it's so ridiculous it's like i it's like oh my god i have a boner when i wake up in the morning and we gotta have a name for that and then i walk around with a big flag and go oh wait I'm with this. I'm with these people. And it's just like, you're not right. doing anything great. You're there's nothing going on other than human. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do above that? But it's, a, but now it's a protected class. So if you got fired or something, you could sue them. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I could understand getting fired for having a boner in front of an employee and, you know, not. Well, that's pants a whole on. other thing. That's a Zuma sexual. <laughs> oh my God. That's right. That one guy accidentally had this camera on. Right. And then uh, it's, it's been, a, it's been a couple incidents of it. It's, it's actually, it's amazing. Um, the, I guess people have to zoom so much that they're just taking the computers like all over the place and forgetting. I, who, I was just reading or somebody was telling me that like, now that people are starting to go back into the office, they're forgetting that they're actually in public in an office. So apparently somebody was at their cubicle or something in the office and like st started like taking their clothes off or doing something or like touching themselves in some way because it was just so, um, it was just so hardwired into them to like do whatever you want because they were had they were used to just being on Zoom for the last year and a half. So it was instinct instinctual. And that shows so, yeah. the important that shows the importance of in-person meetings and being around people because we can yeah. get we can get checked ourselves when we're doing stupid stuff. And then it'd be like, oh wait, yeah. this isn't socially correct. Okay. And get back to uh yeah, like they can actually see more than just my, my head and shoulders like yeah. I am I'm not disembodied we've been disembodied for yeah the, the last year and a half no I'm the weirdo that if I'm doing a meeting I also have to have my shoes on if, if oh. it's on, I'm a guy that if if I have a meeting uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll have a you know I'll be dressed well even though no one will see me even though I the, think that's important I have to I brush my teeth no matter what even if oh, I thought podcast, you were just going to end it. I brush my teeth. I brush. I have brushed I, I my like, teeth oh, yeah. in my life. Yeah. I, can you congratulate me? Because that's my no. identity category. I'm a, I'm a tooth brusher. I, I totally embrace your brushing teeth obsession and I understand it. I don't get it, but I accept you on every level. And what rally should we go to? Well, I, you're erasing my humanity by not, um, <laughs> by not, you're not seeing me as human. moving me. Yeah. Accepting and tolerating is not the same as, uh, as um, celebrating how, and uh, how yeah. <clears throat> how did we get here as a society? Do you have the answer to that question? Because no. I don't. 
No. So my book, The Problem with Everything. So if anything, the podcast is an offshoot of that book, The Problem with Everything, which came out in uh, at the end of 2019. And that really has to do with a lot of these culture wars and the generational divides and it's kind of what it's like to be a Gen Xer and kind of navigate these waters because I'm constantly interrogating myself. Like, am I missing something? Why am I so irritated by these people saying these things? Like, am I just being petty? Is this a get off my lawn kind of thing? Right, like, what, right. what is it? So, so I don't am know I my grandparents? question. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, so the question that you just asked is, is the one I ask myself constantly. I mean, there are lots of researchers and smart people who have come up with pretty concrete theories using data and surveys and research and interviews and, you know, depend. so you could ask one of them and they could say, oh, it has to do with how parenting has changed. I mean, if anything, the Gen Xers are the worst parents. Um, we are, we have turned out to be, I don't have kids, so I can say this, I guess, or maybe I can't say it because I don't have kids, but Wait, there's um, got to be I, a name for it. Uh, no, wait, people congratulate themselves for not having kids, which cracks me up to no end. I know. I, it's like you should just be so I don't need to congratulate myself because I'm so happy about it. I don't need to be. It's like there's just no I don't yeah. need any validation because I feel already just automatically yeah. very validated by it. But um, uh, no, I think that um, that there is a theory that says, like, those of us who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, like our parents just it was sort of benign neglect. I mean, not my parents specifically, but as a group, I think there was that kind of parenting style in the 70s at that time. Like we were the latchkey kids and we were coming home. Our, the moms went back to work on mass, you know, the upper middle class ones. A lot of the moms always were at work, but if we want to talk about trend lines. Um, so yeah, I think that there's like this thing where some of the parents feel that they were abandoned by their parents. So they start over parenting. Um, you see that a lot, like just oh. absolutely like micromanaging their kids or wanting to be their kid's best friend or, you know, so saving them from every kind of pain, intervening in their lives to such an extent that the kids don't learn how to sort out their own stuff. Like I had a guest on Lenore Skenazy who, um, who talks about this stuff uh, all the time. She talks about how kids need to learn to be more resilient and they need to be left alone. Like, you know, she, she famously let her I think was he nine or something? Her son ride the subway alone. I think he he was nine, and um, she wrote about it in the in the New York Post, and she was called America's worst mom. Like overnight, she was on every talk show. Like, how can you do that? You know, they're going to call Child Protective Services on you. You let your kid ride the subway, and you know, it had been very planned out, and he wanted to ride it, and you know, they, you know, figured out. Uh, this was in New York city, you know, where, where he should go. And it was absolutely fine. So she's kind of made um, an industry of this, of this idea of, of free range kids. That's her org organization is called let grow. So like, let go and let grow. So, oh, so, so she much would, sense. yeah. So she would say, for instance, that um, this obsession with safety uh, and this kind of coddling Jonathan Haidt is another one who talks about this a lot, the coddling of the American mind. Um, that's a book that's cited all the time, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. So they talk about parenting styles and, and then just the rise of the internet and social media and kids spending more and more time on, on screens and just not just out in the world negotiating real life. So to answer your question, those sorts of people would say that there's something about the way these generations are growing up um, that is making them kind of cling to identity categories um, as they manifest on screens and on social media, because social media is their, is their life. That is their social life. Yeah. And so I guess having an avatar and having being known by your category, it's, it's perhaps it feels necessary because it's so flattening anyway, the, the screen is flattens everything. So you need anything you can do to kind of put yourself forward, put yourself forth. Wow. It's not, you know, it's funny. It's like a nine-year-old going on the New York City subway now compared to a nine-year-old going on the New York City subway in 1989. Um, probably there was a lot more nine-year-olds on the subway going alone in those years and also a lot more stabbings. We're in a safer time. Yes. Oh, no. I mean, New York City, I mean, the last couple of years notwithstanding is incredibly safe. I mean, it feels like the suburbs in many places. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was only when I was a kid, I went there in, in the uh, 1980s with my parents and, and the subway was rough. And then um, and yeah. then I was there in 2019 and I'm like, 
the subway is glorious. Everyone's kind. And <laughs> well, it, it wasn't it, running on time then. It, if it ever came, it was it was glorious. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there was a period there where it was uh, the trains were breaking down every every stop, but they seem to have gotten that together. Yeah, that's uh, that's why I love New York. The subway thing. It's just I I don't know. It's there's something about it. I mean, and coming from San Francisco, where I didn't have a car for you know 15 years, and then coming to LA and having a car, there's there's fun to that because it's like oh wait i'm not pressed up against people to go somewhere and there's also you know and i'm in my own room with my own radio and air conditioning and then at the same time it's like i'm in my own room with my air conditioning this feels weird i'm not i'm not in the struggle of uh being smushed up against someone while we all just kind of nod and go all right this is humanity i know i know it's hard to say the subways are getting crowded now there was a you know a year ago there was nobody on them it was amazing like you always got a seat and I've noticed in the last couple months, everybody's starting to jam in there again. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I, it's, you know, and I'm not a fan of being jammed up against people. So I was always, I was listening to, you know, I would listen to uh, David Bowie and I had some other record in my head when I was, uh, you know, when I was navigating the subways and very clueless about it in New York, but I would just go to my happy space. And now every time I listen to Aladdin Sane, the David Bowie album, I'm brought right back into my happy space of being on a subway. And I think I got my, I got myself so psyched up to be happy and be crowded that now when that comes on, I have moments of happiness because I was crowded for a bit, maybe because I was able to leave New York and I was there for a short time. Wow. So do you have this thing where, um, or did you ever maybe go through a time where listening to music was almost intolerable because it made you sad? Like, no, especially um, like you since you got divorced like i wonder if there's anything oh, like any kind of like thing in your period in your adult life where suddenly like music was just too emotionally uh heavy or something i had to what so when i when i got i mean this was a long time when did i get divorced like 13 years ago but um but there was a point where it was just like there was there was music that and I, I got divorced in a very um, antagonistic way, so it was it wasn't a pleasant. So in you were way mad like, more than sad. Uh, no, say? no, I, I was sad. Yeah, she yeah. was she okay. was mad and angry and was like just trying to ruin me on every single level. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, uh, <laughs> it blew my mind. But it was the Jehovah's Witnesses too. So there was a that I was just not having the belief system is an antagonistic thing against Jehovah. And so I would, so all these friends I had were coming at me with very viciously and telling me I need to come back to the Jehovah's witnesses. This is my opening. So not only was I having a divorce, but I was having a separation from a ton of people who were just boozing up at my house lot the week before and always asking me for concert tickets. Wait, the Jehovah's Witness, they can, oh, I, uh, oh, they can drink. I'm, I'm thinking of the Seventh-day Adventists. Right, they no. They can't drink. Okay, yeah, right. They can, they can drink in moderation and to them moderation is they can like lay down and be puking in the toilet <laughs> and, and it's probably from bad sushi they had two days ago. <laughs> it, it, it's not the 18 shots of Jägermeister they had. So it's just, but they it, can't celebrate holidays, right? They right, exactly. Yeah. Wow, crazy. So anyway, but yeah, so I, because I, uh, I think one of the reasons I started listening to podcasts was there was a point like several years ago, uh, even up until pretty recently, where it was like every song on my iTunes, I would just find myself skipping, skipping, skipping. Oh, it would so like what? remind me of this time or that time. And it wasn't oh, even, yeah. it didn't even have to do with like anything, you know, in particular, like, oh, I can't listen to this because this reminds me of like, you know, that relationship from 1998. Like, you know, this reminds me of like when my mother was dying of cancer or this, this song reminds me of something. And it was like a, it was like a minefield, my music. And it, I don't, it was, it was like, it was too, I couldn't take it on. So I, yeah. could, I, I could listen to people talking on podcasts, but I couldn't listen to music. And it was really, I actually, I wrote a piece about it and, um, a couple people understood what I was saying, but then I had a lot of people saying like, you know, oh, how, how sad, you know, how, how pathetic and sad and you should just find some new artist or something. It's like, well, it's, it's a little more complicated. Yeah. Than that. So yeah. You just reminded me there was one song, Neil Diamond put out a song called Pretty Amazing Grace when I was right in the middle, of, like right when I found out I was getting divorced, I didn't even know I was getting divorced. I was just seeing oh. the money go out of my credit card as she had already left and I didn't know what was happening. But um, but he say he play. I was I was watching Jonathan Ross, 
uh, uh, TV host in the UK that I used to uh, download um, uh, in questionable ways in 2006. <laughs> um, and, but in order to get, in order to watch his show, you, that's the only way you can get it in those days. And, um, and Neil Diamond was on and he played Pretty Amazing Grace. And I just started weeping uncontrollably. So when I hear Pretty Amazing Grace, that's a mm. song that I go, I, I have to be in a very good space to listen to it and go, oh, I have such gratitude for getting divorced because it, I have to be in that space. And if mm -hmm. I'm not anywhere near that space, I can't listen to that song. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I remember somebody, somebody wrote in, it was a, a podcast I listened to a lot called The Fifth Column. And I remember they read um, a, a, an email that had come in from a listener and it was a guy and he had lost his son. He was a father. He had lost a, a young child. And he said, getting through this grief, I was unable to listen to music and I was unable to sit in silence. So listening to you guys talk on this podcast has gotten me through this because there is something about listening to other conversations. I find it very soothing. And I, I find there is something incredibly, um, it just, it feels, it, 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 it kind of keeps you company in a way, all these different people talking to each other on YouTube and everything. And so I, I wonder like how many people are experiencing that without even realizing it. It's a, it's a way to um, avert loneliness a little bit. Cause I, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Frog in my throat there. Okay, vocal fry. That's that's the. Uh, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, but you've got the uh, NPR. The, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't have cough buttons in podcasting. No, that's the other thing, right? You just the cough button is a total radio relic. Oh, that's funny. I, I only did college radio and pirate radio. We we didn't have cough buttons. We just mm. had a we had a jank board and just prayed it worked. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the cough button. They always they go in to do an interview in NPR studio. They're like. Make sure you hit the cough button if you're going to cough. You're going to mute really? mute yourself. You can have wow. no coughing on this station. Yeah. I was on P I was on a PRI show uh, to the best of our knowledge when my book came out. But it was but it was remote, so I had to sit alone in a studio yes. with an engineer as I had to have this intimate conversation with someone in Chicago or whatever. And um, they're usually like that. It's crazy, isn't it? It's weird. It kind of really depressed me because I thought like, and then I found out with Terry Gross, a lot of her interviews are not in person. They all, they're, they're, none of them are in person. I don't think she even allows it. I think that's the whole thing. Yeah. I don't like that because like, even, even now is like, we're, cause we're talking, it's going to be released on audio, but I see your face and we're on zoom. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we're doing this is because of pandemic before that I would only do interviews in person because we need to see each other as we talk. But doesn't that limit your guests? I mean, it did. well, it did. It did. They had to be touring through Los Angeles promoting their book right. in order for me to uh, to tape them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually love uh, being able to get a guest from anywhere in the world. So I do now, too. I, I was yeah, I used yeah. to be militant about it. I would be like when publicists would talk to me, they'd be like, well, they're not coming to L.A. And I'm like, well, I can't interview them. It, it was just like, that's it. And um and so I would usually get them a few hours before they went and did a book signing. And then I would, you know, bring my field gear and just record them wherever they were at or at a cafe, usually mm -hmm. at a cafe. And then that's how oh. I got. So that's why it was called drinks with Tony. Cause I would, I would bring my, and I have a really lo-fi gear where I have a boom mic, but I will sit uh -huh. in the middle of a restaurant or a cafe and I'll throw it out. And oh, see, people, that's so hard. Ugh. It's good. It's hard. I love, I love that hard though, because it th it's kind of throws it throws the energy into this space of weirdness and then all of a sudden it's normal and it, it, it it's like brutally intimate um and then it's 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 been weird because like when i interview people that i know who are my friends and just happen to have books out we kind of have a it's almost a little too intimate where we have to just kind of after we're done we just have to say goodbye or we'll just like have a long embrace and it'll feel a little too weird <laughs> But see, I think getting back to I, I derailed us conversationally, but I think we were saying that there's something about listening to people talk to each other that's incredibly compelling. Uh, and I, I, I do a lot of it. Like, I just I, I love, you know, I can't I can't get enough of it. And, and you know, sometimes people say, like, how, how do these podcasts go on for like two hours, three hours? And somehow the audience is out there for that. They're just they, they can't get enough. Well, and it's, yeah. it, it's because that's how we get a, that's how we get to a point, I think. Um, and and when, we, when we did our yes. podcast panel, you brought up Joe Rogan and, you know, and people like, it's just, 
people are so canceling of Joe Rogan. I don't know if you remember that. Well, unsuccessfully. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cancel him. It's it, yeah. it's it's absurd because they don't even look at the facts. They just sit there and go, "He needs to be canceled because blank, blank, and blank." And I'm like, "Have you listened to the context?" Of course they have. Yeah, they I know. Care. But but yeah. we talked about. Um, I think we. This is now. Tell me if I'm wrong because I could be totally wrong. But I think we just talked about his length of his interviews and how, and like I look at someone like him and go, they they have to sometimes they have to have those three hour interviews to get to what they need. Okay, I'm yes, out of my. I, I could be out of true? my. Mind. <laughs> no 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 i think you're absolutely right but that isn't that true in life there's always like you know there's people who you have great conversations with they 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 ascend right you know you've yeah. got to, you've got to take off you've got to get you know it's like a plane you got to get like thrust like you got to get up there to your cruising out and then there's a moment where you're like oh yes like you you've hit it like oh we've 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 come upon a concept like we have a sort of there's a there's a revelation here somewhere and, and it's like explosive it's so exciting but now here's the question why Joe Rogan could just edit it down. So we get to that moment, you know, within 15 minutes, as opposed to an hour and 15 minutes, people don't, people are patient. I mean, for all the ADD out there in the world and talk about limited attention spans, we have this whole other genre where people are just listening for hours and hours and have seemingly endless attention span. I think this just came to my head. So, but I think it's because of storytelling in general, we want to see how a story gets there. So how does a conversation get there? It was kind of the interesting part of it where maybe the person's just getting, you know, especially something, especially on a, you know, on a Joe Rogan thing where someone just walks in has never met him in their life. They shake hands and all of a sudden they're like, oh, God, I'm on Joe Rogan, which Joe Rogan's kind of like the Tonight Show. for Right. And he has no idea what he's doing because he hasn't prepared. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there's an odd beauty to it. And you just go, OK. And, uh, you know, it's um, but the, the, the what it's it's about. OK, how it's like it's like in right. It's like in writing and, you know, in, in writing a novel or in writing a screenplay. It's about. The question is, how do we get there? Like, even if it's a superhero, if it will go to see a superhero movie, we know the superhero is not going to die in the end. We know the superhero is going to, you know, come down on the enemy. But the question is, how do they get there? And having that open question, I think, is one of the things that that listening to a conversation flow. Right. And then they can go, oh, wait, I was there. Like I watch baseball too. It's the only sport I watch and it's, it's 162 games and they're long games and nothing yeah. happens. But when something happens, it has so much more meaning. Yes. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a nice analogy. Yeah. It is, it is okay. amazing though, but yeah. But if you write a screenplay, you've got to be tight. Like you've got to get to it. There's no, you can't, you know. And that's the frustrating thing about over three hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's it's the frustrating thing about writing. There's a beauty to it because you do have to distill it and understand it. And then I think it helps in other arenas, but it also is kind of does a disservice because people who are only screenwriters only think that they have to be that trim on it. And it's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. That's why I'm a failed screenwriter. I just didn't find it satisfying. You know, it, I, I could have pursued it and I still kick myself or like, why did I, why didn't I try a little harder? Like, there was oh, a did you have, did had, you have an opening where people, yeah, I had, really... yeah, I had a novel. I had, uh, I published a novel. It's, God, it's been almost 20 years. I can't believe it called the quality of life report in 2003. And it was optioned and it had this long kind of life in Hollywood. And um, Nicole Kidman was supposed to make it for a while. And I was having, and I wrote a script for it. Oh, you I mean, did. I, wanted, I, I wanted to get, I was so happy because I wanted health insurance through the, through the guild right was, exactly that it's was, all about was my insurance. only aim i know so so uh but yeah i was having meetings and i was you know going all over town and and i was just i hated it like i hated the people i i hated the whole they were just it felt dumb it just felt it was not interesting but i should have tried a little harder <laughs> i don't i don't know see i don't know if that's the answer because i've been going i've been about that myself because I when I came to LA it was uh because the screenplay that I wrote based on my book was in development and went into production oh wow 
and it, and it's on Amazon Prime now. You could actually watch the movie. It's pretty oh, cool. Oh, it was made. It went into yeah. production. You make it sound like it went into production and then got shut down. No, no, it, so it's it, came, on, it came out. Okay. Yeah, Eric yeah. Stoltz directed it. It was, uh, and, and I was a part of the process Amazing. from beginning to end, which is very rare. But um, yeah. but then but then I tried to move into other areas. I'm like, okay, now 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 I'm gonna go make some money and get health insurance, right? And even still. There's, there's such a fear and sadness among screenwriters who are only doing screenwriting and yeah. are only working in TV where I don't want to be a part of that club. Um, I even I go to these, I go to these writers, writers guilds uh, meetings and stuff and listen to the other people talking about getting work. And I'm like, this just sounds like working for a tech company. These people aren't satisfied with their work. No, I know. I get so many of them coming to me as students because I teach um, essay writing and personal essay and memoir. I teach private workshops and I get a lot of people who are screenwriters who they just want to write a personal essay. Like they just want to have something in the modern love column. Well, just it's very, very hard to get something published in the New York Times modern love column. But yeah, it's they, there's a there's like a you can just the, the hunger to actually put their own stamp on something or have their own personality in their own work, you, you just see it. And it's just something that's not available in, in screenwriting. So yeah. I like working with them. Um, and I, and I lucked out because the Eric saw my vision and, and the it's I, with Jesus jerk. I wanted in my head, I wanted a screwed up after school special that looked like it was filmed in Scandinavia. Oh, and like a Lars Van Trier after-school no, special? I, Lars Van Trier would be a little too harsh. Okay. Uh, All right. so, just, Speaking of three hours, it might be three or four hours long. Though, <laughs> right, so, exactly. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll watch a three-hour Lars Van Trier film. But <laughs> um, but like for this, I just wanted it to be something where it was just kind of like a melancholic Norwegian uh, you know, after-school special. And we got we got as close to it as we could in America, I think, the way... Wow, uh, the way it was written and the way Eric and the editors put it together, uh, you know, there was I, obviously there were things that I could have really pushed it into a way where if I had all the power, but all the power doesn't work because you have to get rights to music. You can't the, the it costs too much to get this. So the so it couldn't. There's no way it could be absolutely right, but it's it's as right as it could have gotten, and that that's great. It gives me joy to no end. That's fantastic. That's yeah. really. A wonderful thing and i made zero yeah. money on it so well, there, there you go you, <laughs> gotta, you gotta pick one and i, I, I yeah, and that's that that's what i've been grappling with do we really have to pick one because the the i've been trying to write commercially since then and it's and i and i've i've come to the epiphany a couple of years ago where it's like no stop it do my thing and and you know but at the same time i should be open to i do my thing and I should also get a payday in health insurance. I know. Well, I mean, yeah, it's pick pick one. Yeah, I wasn't, that was, I was being a little glib. Like if you're going to really do your own thing, I mean, as an essayist, I know I'm not going to make any money as an essayist, but that's really what I do best. It's what I'm known for. It's what satisfies me. But it's there's what no satisfies way. you. That's everything. But there's, but there's no, but I'm not going to make a lot of money doing that. Uh, I mean, even with the podcast, like I have not, I'm still trying to figure out how to monetize it. That's I don't know thing, how to, but, <laughs> so, I, all, but all I do yeah. is all I, I, I know how to pay my bills. Uh, you know, it's like people well, think I make, good. people think I make money on, uh, on drinks with Tony. No, I actually pay about 40 bucks a month to do all the back end stuff. And then oh, I do that's, all that's low. Well, wow. cause I do most of my back end stuff. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I'm the, um, and just out of necessity. I've done it out of necessity for so long that I think I do it faster than if I hired somebody to do some of it. But, um, right. Yeah. But, but the joy of being able to talk with people is, you know, to talk with someone like you and have this conversation is beyond payment. I mean, I would love to get paid for the time and that would be great if I can figure it out. But even if I can't figure it out, I'm still showing up here because this is great. No, I I'm with you. You know, I just did a, um, a monologue. I did a solo episode. Um, it's just out, it's out this week. Oh my God. I can't wait to listen to it. It's the second time I've done this. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a guest. I just talked and I talked about this idea of the, the mid-career pivot, you know, so we're all having to kind of recalibrate 
you know, those of us in the media anyway, we're having to recalibrate our approaches to our professions. You know, if you're, if you were uh, a journalist, you know, a lot of journalists are leaving the big publications and starting Substacks. Everything is about crowdfunding. Everything is about, you know, writing directly to your audience, getting paid directly by your fans. Um, you see a lot of podcasters doing this. And I think it's just really hard, especially if you maybe are over 40. I mean, I have found with, with the podcast, I love doing it and it's actually doing really, really well. It has a lot of listeners. I mean, considering that I have no marketing other than my Twitter, it gets like a lot of downloads. It does well, but I am not given my age and temperament, I guess, and just sort of skill set. I have I'm not good at Patreon. I'm not good at like making, you know, promotional videos and putting them on TikTok or YouTube or whatever. Like I just, I'm not interested in it and I suck at it and I don't really know how to do it. And it's made it very hard to, um, to get any money from this podcast. <laughs> so and, and I, so anyway, talk about, yeah, yeah. No, we might have to hire millennials be, to do well, this. We do because and, yes, that's because the thing we pay. Uh, yes. Yes. Or yeah. Gen Zers, forget millennials. We can't afford that. Millennials are old now. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's like I think it might be a Generation X thing to a point where we have that yes. DIY thing, where it you know Nirvana was not a multi Nirvana was not in the top forty. Nirvana was a kind of boring band you saw at a pizza joint in uh, when they came through town, and nobody was ever going to make it. I for me, I came from that. No one's ever going to make it, but we like this. And then all of a right. sudden, certain people started really making it and it got confusing. And then, you know, I was a snot nosed little, you know, kid at the Well, no, not a little kid. I was in my 20s, but I'm like, well, you know, screw, screw those rock stars. I'm going to go see, you know, Japanese trash bands at blank. And just right. I wanted my little tribe of, you know, right. and it's um, and maybe that may I for me, maybe that comes into why. I don't know how to monetize drinks with Tony, or maybe I'm not doing it. I'm not even doing it right because I'm still going, it's the little club. It's well, also club. it's, it's not cool. I mean, we were all about, I mean, I don't know how old you are exactly. Like we 52. were all about not, not. Oh, okay. So I'm one year younger than you are. So, yeah. so you know, we were all about like not promoting ourselves, not branding. Like that was just the least cool branding, thing ever. It was, branding is branding. still terrible. It's no, terrible. But, they, but you have to, the problem it right. But like we were everything that is now required to like steer your own ship as an as a content creator right everything that is now required to succeed at that our generation was like like you know just we were just allergic to that like it yeah. was everything that we despised and so it's not only do we not have the skill set or the temperament or the sensibility to do that stuff we we are not going to retire anytime soon so we have to make it work like we, we're not digital natives. We're not good at social media for the most part. Obviously there are exceptions, but we also like need to keep going for at least another 15 years. <laughs> so we're in this yeah. really weird jam, I think. It is a weird jam. It's like that. And that's why I want to use a Xerox machine and put out flyers instead of putting <laughs> instead of putting something on Photoshop and making, you know, it's like these people put out a promo on, you know, they do it in Photoshop and they do it in 10 minutes and throw it out there digitally. And I'm like, really? You never had to sneak into somebody else's temp job to use their copy machine because oh you know enough money? Exactly. Like your own temp job. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's right. All the stuff I used to. Oh, my God. The temp jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think it's hard. You know, asking for money is really hard. Like when I set up the Patreon, I was mortified. I hated it. And and as a result, I don't have that many. I don't have that many Patreon people because I haven't like offered more content. Like I can't even bring myself to go in there. Yeah. It's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. But then people sign up yeah. anyway. And then I feel guilty. Like, oh, why are you don't, don't give me any money. <laughs> I know. I, and I, I'm the problem on that too. Cause I've had people go, Oh my God, I love your show. What do you have a Patreon? And I'm like, I don't even know how to set one up. <laughs> no, I know. I, I should. And they it, go, yeah. yeah. Or they go, I don't like, I, they go, I don't like Patreon, but how can I just support you directly? Can I just Venmo you? And I'm like, Oh my God, ew. No, like that. I feel disgusting. I, 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 put it in my I, underwear. We, we put it in my get, underwear. I, <laughs> 
exactly. Like, like, like a G string of, the, uh, of like your, your podcast, just slip a couple of bills in there. Yeah. No, but I, like, we have to get over it because that's how people operate now. And that's how people end up living homeless and on the street. I used to have a podcast and I was a writer. I know exactly. (laughs) I know five years from now, there's going to be like all these, like, you know, people with mics, like living in tents and uh, overpasses. (laughs) No, no, you you know what we're good at? And this is what I realized. I'm good at living with a lot of people and in commune living. So there's just going to be a bunch of 65 year olds in a, uh, in a one big warehouse and two bathrooms, but, but we all know how to do it because we did it like, you know, 45 years ago that's terrifying can you imagine can you imagine oh, I, the retirement homes the nursing homes that this is going to be like everyone's just gonna have a have a subs to have a zine there it's going to be just all zines gonna have zines. In the old age home yes and and on the brochure on the brochure for the old age home it'll show that it'll show the copy machines that you can use Right. Xerox would be like, I know the, the, the workers will be like, what's a stapler? What? What do you keep yeah. asking for? How, how do you how do you bind these chapbooks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait. I know it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's it's <sighs> just it's it's uh, it's just it's really strange. And then coming back to and then maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should be demi sociopathic sociopathic um yes yes uh no i think the kids are right i think we are wrong in a lot of ways i don't know that we're wrong but just we we had a very different i think that you know i write about this in the problem with everything too i think that like there were such dramatic shifts in the culture um that you know between our time and the millennials that like I sometimes find I have more in common with somebody 20 years older than I am than with somebody seven years younger yes. or 10 years younger. You know, yes. like we we are more aligned with the boomers, even though the Gen Xers hated the baby boomers. Right. That was if any if we had a brand, it was that we hated the boomers. But um, I think that we you know, we, we grew up in the same universe as as they did. Like, you know, we we grew up in the we had pay phones and answering machines and staples and photocopy mimeograph machines and somebody not that much younger that's like relics to them my last landline in san francisco and i lost it in the divorce because you know on landlines you you, lost your landline in the divorce i did oh it's terrible landline in the divorce it was the greatest phone number ever (laughs) (laughs) i lost my landline in the divorce the phone number was Uh, 415 vagina one (laughs) <laughs> that you was request that how did yeah. you figure that out well there used to be this i don't know if it's still out there but when i was on the phone this was like in 2002 i got that number i was on the <laughs> internet and there was this thing called phone spell and so as oh i was God. talking to the woman on the oh other side God. i was like hey i was really nice you know i was nice to her i was like i'm trying to get something that spells something she's like really and i'm like yeah so then she would just throw me they used to th- throw you yes. three numbers yes. they go, now which one do you want and i'll be like hold on so then i go through and i'm like <laughs> those don't spell anything and she was wonderful and glorious she's like what are you using? What? And I'm like, what you do is you go to phone spell. She's like, that's great. Let's try these numbers. So she was really God. like actively trying to help me. And then we, and then we got to that number and I went, I think we got it. And she's like, Oh my God, what is it? And I'm all vagina one. And she was like, you don't want that number. And I'm like, <laughs> I want that number. And she's like, no. And I'm like, that's the number I want. And then, so like all the little film stuff and stuff, all the flyers were, um, you know, for more information, call 415 vagina one. It was just, it was glorious. Oh my gosh. After that, everything went downhill. You could have sold that to like a porn outfit or some, some, I just, I just like that. It just, it was like the opposite of everything I was, you know, I used to throw a lot of readings and stuff too. in San Francisco where we, you know, do readings at bars for more information, call 415 vagina one. And, but I also had my cell phone. So all the weirdos can call that. And the answering machine was there and I could just blow off all the weirdos (laughs) and then go, Oh wait, that's a real one. God, I never, I, I still have a landline actually. I never, I never even thought to see what my number spells. I'm not even really sure what my number is. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think I, I don't have a landline, but I think I would feel better if I had a landline because I do think a landline is still important in the days when a satellite can go down. Yeah. 
and I actually liked it. Uh, I mean, why, why did I have it initially? I just was doing like, I, I liked it better for interviewing people. Like if All I, the had, sound I was is so reporting, much better. Yeah. yeah, but no, but just like if I was reporting or something, I didn't want to, and this before there were AirBuds and everything, AirPods, AirPods. <laughs> AirPods. <laughs> it looks like a movie about a dog, isn't it? Um, <laughs> before there were AirPods, uh, it was hard to hold your phone up against your ear like that, your cell phone. So that's why right. I have a landline. Yeah. yeah, I used I used to have the la- I used to have the landline. That's right. You just reminded me I, with the Vagina One account. I had the landline that had a little adapter that went into a recording device that came to. It, I had this yes. whole rig so I can do my interviews. <laughs> back when I interviewed people for the Chronicle and other magazines, you know, back when I was right. still in that, um, when I was still in it, when it wasn't such awfulness to be a freelance writer. Yes, it was just yes. awful. It wasn't awfulness. I know. Uh. Yeah, it's beyond awful now. I don't. People are always just like, "Oh, why don't you write for such and such publication? Like, why aren't you writing for?" And I'm like, "Because I can't afford to spend seven hours getting paid twenty five dollars." Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, no, I did one of my last freelancing gigs. They cut my rate. They 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 cut my rate. No, no, they cut my rate and asked for more money. And this wasn't for a publication like the Chronicle or anything. This was just hey, wait. They cut your rate and ask for more words. More yeah, more words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, you yeah. Said, yeah, yeah and yeah. and I was like, no. And they're like, um, and they're like, no. But you don't understand. This is good for your exposure. And I'm like, oh my god. I'm like, no. I I actually have you know two page articles in magazines right now, and you're just like a BS music company trying to sound cool. So. Uh, you're I'm insulted now. So the answer is no, I quit, <laughs> you know, and, just, and then do, it's, do it for the exposure. I know you wonder how long that's going to last. Like, the, does there come a point in life where they stop throwing that at you? It's like, I don't need to expo- like I'm 51 years old. Like, don't don't pull the exposure card. Don't play. Well, the I, I do card. it for indecent exposure now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I always say, like, I remember my page because, you know, how some people on Patreon or they'll like they'll say like, oh, well, well, some people, I'll send a tasteful nude, you know, if you like sign up at this rate or, you know, the only thing I'm, I'm thinking like, I will, if they sign up at a certain level, I will not send a, a nude. <laughs> that was, that That's was my threat. idea. I was yeah. going to hold them hostage. Like, uh, you know what? I am going to send you a, a nude shot of my 51 year old self every week, unless you sign up at this dollar level and keep paying me, <laughs> in which case I will not do that. That is the best angle ever. I might do that myself. Go for it. Huh. I think, yeah, it's. Um, I will could, put credit could, by. We could be like a Megan. Groupon. No, we need a Groupon <laughs> of our disgusting. Hey, speak for yourself. Themselves. I think we're well, beautiful. I think I, we're I gorgeous. For yes, we are. But you know, it's it's. Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, yeah, there's there's that that's that's the one uh, marketing strategy I've come up with. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Or even or even worse. I, how about this one? I will send you a poem every week unless you do the Patreon. That's worse. (laughs) That's way worse. It'll be personal poetry that I probably should have written in a diary, but I'm sending it to you. It's like, I'm going to, if you don't pay me this money, I am going to pretend that you, that I'm 25 and you're my boyfriend and that (laughs) you, I'm going to make you read stuff that I wrote, or actually I'm going to pretend that I'm the boyfriend that made you read my poetry and my screenplays and comment on them. I'm going to, I'm going to have that relationship with you unless you pay me. And And I'm sending a mixtape. I'm sending a mixtape and you need to listen to it and tell me why it was in that order. Right. And it's only going to have love cats on it. (laughs) Yes. It's not just one love cat. The whole thing is love cats. It's not a mixtape. I'm doing that. every time, every time I, with the mixtapes I made for the girls that I was uh, in love with as a teenager, they all had love cats on there. love cats and um, echo. In, uh, there was an echo in the Bunnyman song that I always put on them too. They just, that just meant and also that Allison, them. Allison by Elvis Costello. Oh, I feel like that was one. a big one for the mixtape. Yeah. Yeah. Really. I didn't use it. And that's maybe why I got into a bad marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could go back and do it all over. If I did Allison, she would have rejected me. <laughs> it would have went to the right person. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, man. oh, Megan, it's so much fun talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my God. Are we done already? That was oh, so fast. We've been talking forever. Yeah. Yeah, we have. All right. I think we got a lot accomplished. Not.
Did we say? Did we say anything of substance? Oh, we said a lot of I substance. Hope. We did. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Good. All right. I, I, I worry. Okay. All right. Well, this is so fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> tell people it. to listen to my podcast. I have to tell people to listen to my podcast because yes. I haven't been the Unspeakable Podcast. You can go to the Unspeakable Podcast dot com to hear all about it and learn about it but it's on all your regular podcast places and it's once a week and it's an interview show and people should check it out and what's your venmo account so they can send you money <laughs> i'm just gonna you know what i'm gonna send you just my my bank my banking details and I, okay can, with social security put, number put them or... in the put them in the show notes <laughs> yeah. thanks Meg. thanks tony You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.